We'll begin in Matthew chapter 16. This evening is class number seven in our course on the one another's. We're examining all the, all the times in the New Testament that God tells us to do something or not do something to one another. Of the first six classes, we talked about what to do to one another. Things like love one another and serve one another, comfort one another, pray for one another. Tonight, we will look at the do nots. And there are about, well, there might be more, but tonight we'll focus on six of the things we should not do to one another. One thing that's really important for us to remember is that God is invested in your spiritual growth. He wants his church to grow. He wants his people to grow. Now, by grow, we don't necessarily mean numbers. You can have a church of thousands. Doesn't mean it's a healthy church. But he wants us to grow in the knowledge of Christ. He wants us to grow in spiritual maturity. He wants us to grow in the way that we interact with one another, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And as we've said throughout this whole series, God uses means by which he achieves those ends. And one of the chief means he uses is one another. That's why there's no such thing as an isolated or maverick Christian. Oh, there might be exceptions. People like to point to the thief on the cross who received Christ in his last hour on earth. Or the exception of the person who is just physically unable to attend church. But the the normal expectation is if you believe in Christ and you desire to follow him, then you will be plugged into a community of his people. And it is in that community that we grow. Which means that you and I have a responsibility, don't we? We are our brother's keeper. We have a responsibility to see to it that each other grows in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when you can offer all the things we talked about in the first six classes, whether it be prayers or comfort, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, serving one another, working with one another, fellowshipping with one another, loving one another, I think I covered them all. If you do all those things, God may use you to affect growth in someone else. That's a privilege, right? And if you're in the faith for any amount of time, you could look back and say, God has used other people to feed into my life to bring me to where I am today. Tonight's class, a little more on the negative side. But we have to face the reality. If God works through us for the edification of one another, then the flip side of that coin is, tragically, that Satan could also work through us to the detriment of one another. And that's some serious stuff. And when I say us, I I do mean us. I didn't mince words there. Not just outside. We know that the devil is working outside, but he would love nothing more than to get a foothold within the church. Matthew 16, it says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This was a satanic attack on the Lord Jesus. And in this passage, it doesn't come from a Pharisee or from a Roman soldier. It comes by way of Peter the Apostle himself. And it comes through Peter, the same Peter who just a few verses ago, on behalf of all the disciples, confessed that Jesus is the Christ. One of the most important passages, not in your handout, but a few verses before this passage, is when Jesus brings his disciples to the coast of Caesarea Philippi and says, Who do men say that I am? And they say, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, one of the prophets. And Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And just a few verses later, in verse 23, Jesus calls him Satan. This does not necessarily mean that Peter turned into Satan doesn't mean that Satan possessed Peter. But what it means is that by standing in the way of Christ, Peter was doing Satan's work. Now, before we beat up on Peter, okay, we're looking backwards, right? We know Jesus had to go to the cross. We know that he rose the third day. Peter was still learning all of this. So this was his Lord that called him out, who he followed, whom he loved, whom he sacrificed his life for even leaving his boat to come follow. And, but Peter's, you know, he's kind of a bold guy. I mean, verse 22, Peter took him aside. You took, you took Jesus aside and rebuked him. No, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. Not if I can stop it. But Jesus says, you're doing the work of Satan. I want, I want to focus on that in verse 23 when he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. In the Christian life, we could either be a source of progress for our brothers and sisters, or we can be a hindrance, a stumbling block. Which will we choose? Let me tell you another story that I'm sure you know about in Acts chapter 5. It's also in your handout. Acts chapter 5, the early church. It says, but a man named Ananias... With his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, the same Peter, right, who back in Matthew was called Satan, now Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, this is not the point of the whole lesson. So we we did a sermon on Acts chapter 5. You can can find that on sermon audio. 
So if you're not familiar with this story, um, I can't get into all the details for sake of time, but Ananias and Sapphira, their, their sin here was not the fact that they didn't give the church their whole property. The sin was that they lied about it. They, they told the church, this is all we have, and yet they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. And Peter rightly identifies that what Ananias and Sapphira did was satanic. And again, it's not Satan from the outside, it's inside the church. So much so that he died on the spot, and in verse 5 it says, Great fear came upon all who heard it. It affected the whole church. So, back to my thesis for this evening. God works through people for the, the betterment and the edification and the progress of his church. But likewise, Satan loves to also work through people, but not for their progress but rather to become a stumbling block for them. Look what James says in chapter 3. So I want you to see there's a, there's a black and white um, sort of uh, approach here. James chapter 3, in talking about the tongue, he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James is not talking about the world outside the church. That goes without saying. We know that people's tongues are unbridled and filled with cursing. But James is rebuking the church. He's saying, you brothers, you use the tongue that God's given you to bless and to curse, to build up and to tear down. Look what Paul says in the next verse, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see that both James and Paul are saying, brothers and sisters, you have a choice. God gave you a mouth. You learned vocabulary. You have opportunity. You're either going to use it for corruption or edification, tearing down or building up, helping one another move forward in their walk with Christ or stumbling over things that you said so that they regress in their walk with Christ. That is a heavy responsibility, is it not? Now, I say all this to set the stage because the Bible is... Is, is pretty clear and, and heavy on this. But before I dive into more of the do nots, I want to also allay your fears. Because if I just stop there, I know when I'm preparing this, I'm thinking, wow, if, if I can be a stumbling block to somebody, if I can be a hindrance to someone, you know what? Maybe it's better I just don't say anything at all. Because I don't want to accidentally be the cause of someone's um, failure in the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life is, is, you know this, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably known people who walked away from the faith. Even now, there are people deconstructing their faith and being public about it on the internet. But for many years, this has always been the case. There have always been heretics, apostates, charlatans, 
dogs, enemies of the cross of Christ. These are all things the Bible says. Antichrists, even. And you know what? People... People will say it's because they lost faith in God and that happens. Or people will say they doubt Jesus and that happens. But one of the most often repeated reasons why people leave the faith, at least what they say, is because of other people. The church, they say, is filled with hypocrites. The church is filled with bitter people. People get hurt because of the church. Now, we could dismiss all that and say, oh, they're just covering for something else. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes people are so in love with their sin that they will blame the church and they'll use it as an excuse. But I don't think we should just be dismissive. I think we should wake up to the reality that sometimes people get burned at church. They get hurt by other brothers and sisters. So we want to avoid those things which hurt other people. That's the goal for tonight. But I don't want you to approach this with such timidity that you think, oh my goodness, am I going to be the cause of someone's apostasy? I want to allay your fears and remind you that the same God who equips us to do all the one another's, the encourage one another, the love one another, the fellowship with one another, the bear one another's burdens, all of those one another's that we've been talking about is the same God who by His Spirit will help you to avoid these six things that He says do not do. And I also want to add that these six things are so clear and so obvious. God will not, He's not going to trick us. You don't have to worry about accidentally causing someone to stumble. If you simply, if I simply determine to not do these things, we will avoid a lot of heartache. Now, will that be 100% true in every case? No. Because if you've been around long enough, whether in the church or at work or with your family, conflicts happen. And sometimes it's not your fault. But we need to lay our heads on our pillows at night with a clear conscience before God, knowing that by the power of the Spirit, we try to do the one another's and we try to avoid the do nots. So if you'll walk with me now through some of these do nots, I think it'll be very clear what it is God is saying. Don't do these things. Number one, do not lie to one another. Colossians 3, 9 through 11 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Do not lie to one another. Pretty simple, right? The ninth commandment. You shall not lie. Paul drives it home in Colossians, and he not only says, don't lie. He gives reasons why we shouldn't lie. First of all, it's because you have put off the old self with its practices. He's saying to the Colossians, you guys used to be liars, But now that you put off the old self and have put on the, verse 10, new self, and now that you're being renewed in knowledge after the Creator, you don't have to lie anymore. You have the power to tell the truth. 
I think in our world, we, we are so used to lying, aren't we? It's just, it's such a common thing. We expect it from politicians. You can't trust a politician. I'm not saying that all politicians lie, but what I am saying is that there's such a reputation behind politicians that we can't watch anyone give a speech from any side of the aisle without listening with skepticism. The same is true for those who are in sales. And if you're in sales, I apologize if that's you, but you're fighting against the fact that people just assume that you're not telling the truth. And we can go on and on. We justify these so-called little white lies, right? Well, you know, I fibbed the numbers on my taxes, but, you know, the IRS is corrupt anyway. We justify, right? We lie. But when you lie to another brother or sister in the faith, you do damage that is hard to make up for. Because you lose trust with people when you lie to them. So Paul says, look, put off the old self. You're, you're dead in Christ and you're risen in Christ. You, you, you were crucified with him and now you're raised. And, and I love that in, in the end of verse 10. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creed. You realize we're, we're created in the image of God, but because of our sin, the image of God has been marred in us. But in Christ, the image of God is being renewed again. That means we're being made more and more like God. God never tells a lie, ever. And so since we are to be reflections of God to our brothers and sisters, how detrimental to God's reputation when we lie to one another. And then Paul goes on to say, in verse 11, there's no Greek or Jew circumcised, uncircumcised. Why is he naming all of these ethnicities and categories it's because he's saying, look, the world outside is a dog-eat-dog world where people are competing over each other. Racism is as old as time. Prejudice is as old as time. Circumcised versus uncircumcised. We know all about that in the New Testament, how the Jews and Gentiles treated one another. We know how the slaves and the free treated each other, how the free treated the slaves, I should say. So what Paul is saying, look, you, you don't have to trample on each other. You don't have to try to outdo one another. You don't have to compete with one another. You don't have to lie to one another because you're all one in Christ. Why would you do that? So, of course, lying is a sin and we shouldn't lie because it's a sin. But Paul adds like two or three more levels to this, right? Of why it's so absurd for Christians to lie to other Christians. When you lie to one another, you betray the God who saved you. When you lie to one another, you forget that you're lying to an image bearer of God. One image bearer of God lying to another image bearer of God. Paul is saying this is absurd. This has no place in the church. It may be out there, but not in here. So number one, do not lie to one another. Number two, do not pass judgment on one another. This is from Romans 14, verses 10 to 13. says, but why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. 
but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You see that word hindrance? Does it remind you of what Jesus said back in Matthew 16 to Peter? You are being a hindrance to me. One way to hinder someone's progress in Christ is to have a critical, judgmental spirit against that person. And Paul says very clearly here in verse 13, do not pass judgment on one another. Judgment belongs to one person, and that is God. And that's what Paul, that's his argument here, right? His argument is, in verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. As a side note, by the way, theologically, this is one of the um, beautiful doctrines that the Baptists, you know, our, our church is a Baptist church. We subscribe to a Baptist confession. I'm not saying other churches don't believe this, but the Baptists have really focused on this in verse 12. Um, is it a doctrine called individual soul liberty? And what that simply means is, since we're all going to give an account to God, we don't need the state to come in and legislate Christianity. You've seen that in the medieval ages with the Roman Catholic Church. We've seen that even in Reformed churches in Europe, even in early America. Churches try to establish themselves as the church, whether it be congregational or Puritan or Presbyterian. And this is not to, to degrade any of those people alive today. But back in the day, they would punish people who didn't believe like them. And the Baptists were the ones who said, you don't need to do that because everyone's going to give an account to God. We need to respect conscience of the, of the believer. Liberty of conscience. But regardless of, that's a side note, just to throw that out there. But in the church, liberty of conscience means that we respect the convictions of our brothers and sisters. Not everyone will agree with you on everything. This is taken from Romans 14. If you read the whole context of Romans 14, Paul is talking to the Romans about how there are some people who only eat vegetables and some people who eat meat. There are some people who celebrate the Sabbath and some people don't. Some people honor holidays and some people don't recognize holidays. Some people drink certain things and some people don't. And he says, let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. That's a pretty radical thought. Because coming out of Judaism, there were feasts that you kept. There were days that you honored. There were things you ate and things you didn't eat. And now Paul is saying, in Christ, you have freedom. But because you have freedom, you know what you get? You get differing opinions. And with differing opinions comes pride and arrogance. And we do it this way. And we raise our kids this way. And we go here. And we go there. And we drink this. And you don't do that? What's wrong with you? And Paul says, do not pass judgment on one another. Now, as a clarification, you might be thinking, but wait a second. Are there no things we could ever confront a brother or sister about? No, that would undermine everything Brother John taught last week. Of course we have to rebuke one another, but that, those are things that are clear in Scripture. When a brother or sister is clearly in sin, when a brother or sister is stagnating in his or her faith, of course we come alongside and lovingly rebuke and teach and admonish one another. Paul is not, this is the same Paul who said that. He's not saying that if someone's uh, committing adultery, you, well, I can't pass judgment. We've got to know the context. But what he is saying is that in the context of things that are not expressly laid down in Scripture, places where we have Christian liberty, 
by, by demanding that someone do things exactly the way you do, you're putting a bridle on that person and you're causing them to be hindered in their walk with Christ. I, I have seen this throughout my Christian life. I'm sure I'm guilty of it as well. Demanding that people do things a certain way that's not expressly laid down in Scripture. And then they try to conform themselves to that way that is not in the Bible. And it could be detrimental to their faith. Let us not pass judgment on one another. Let us not usurp the role of God in telling people how they ought to live their life where Scripture is silent. That is an obstacle. That is a hindrance to their spiritual growth. Number three, do not bite and devour one another. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Bite and devour. Paul says that if you do that, it'll lead to consuming one another. I mean, he's talking to the Galatians. He's saying, listen, your church won't exist very long if you continue to bite and devour one another, which is the exact opposite of what he says in verse 3, love and serving one another. Remember, again, you have a choice. You can serve and love where you can bite and devour. What does he mean by bite and devour? He's not speaking literally here. But he's saying it's the opposite of love. Biting. Conflict. Bad-mouthing. Gossiping. Degrading. Deriding one another. Insulting one another. Some of the greatest casualties in the Christian life are not even the, the biggest persecutors, whether it be militant Islam or communism or atheism, whatever you can find in history. Some of the worst casualties come from what we would call friendly fire. Christians who have their weapons not aimed against the world and against the flesh and the devil, but against one another. This is where divisions come in. We, we see this all throughout church history, but I think we see it even more now in our day and age where people get behind the keyboard of a computer and just start typing heretic and apostate against anyone who doesn't agree with them. YouTube is filled with this kind of crass, quick-to-speak, slow-to-listen judgment on other people they do it this way. He said that. Take things out of context. It's like, you're, it's like you're reading a tabloid from the paparazzi in Hollywood rather than Christians who love one another. Twitter is just filled with biting and devouring one another. Sometimes I see theologians who used to do conferences together doing the same on Twitter. And it happens in the church as well. 
You make a mistake, you say a word that you wish you hadn't said, you said something in a way you wish you hadn't said it, and rather than the person assume the best about you and say, can you please clarify what you meant, they assume the worst about you, and then they start labeling you. That's biting and devouring one another. Very similar, you see a lot of overlap in all these do-nots, right? A lot of them come from a heart of bitterness and, and um, deception. But Paul gives a very strong warning. Look, if you continue to do this, you'll consume one another. Many churches have suffered that very fate. Death by division. May that never be said of us, brothers and sisters. Number four. Do not provoke one another. Or envy one another. Galatians 5.26 says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I think this is just another way of saying some of what Paul's already said. Right? Provoking. Why would we want to do that? Brothers and sisters, we're not in competition. But the disciples, remember the disciples at one point, right after the transfiguration, when Jesus came down from the mountain... There was a little bit of a scuffle between the disciples. They were arguing about who's the, who's the greatest in heaven. Now, the disciples didn't have the knowledge we have today. They didn't have the whole Bible. They were very young, illiterate, learning. But what's our excuse? Are we jealous? Do we wish that we were the missionary, the deacon, the pastor, the musician? The administrator? Do we want the credit? We're not in competition. We are not to provoke one another or envy one another. Those two things fly in the face of the unity that God has called us to. You can't be united with someone while you're provoking them, provoking them to anger. Even tempting them to sin. You can't be united to someone who you're envious of. Where does it come from? Well, Paul answers the question in verse 26. Let us not be conceited. Provoking and envying actually comes from too big of a view of yourself. But if you see God as the greatest being and yourself as the chiefest sinner, and your brothers and sisters as fellow sinners redeemed by grace, that will minimize your tendency in mine to provoke and envy one another. Number five. Do not speak evil against one another. Some translations say, do not slander one another. It goes on to say in James 4, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James here is kind of saying the same thing Paul said earlier, right? Don't judge each other. But I want to focus on that first phrase, do not speak evil against each other. Or do not slander one another. The way that you talk about your brothers and sisters, is it righteous? Do we tend to give each other the benefit of the doubt? 
Or do we assume the worst? This is where gossip comes in. This is where we are prone to try to destroy someone's reputation by speaking evil against them. And I think this goes beyond just the the local church, right? This is the, the church at large. God calls the church the bride of Christ. Will he stand for people who tarnish the reputation of his bride? But yet we are so prone to follow the world and speak evil. Now, I know this, this is heavy on the do-nots because that's what this class is. But just remember that for all of these do-nots, there are counters that we learned in the first six um, classes. So rather than speaking evil, encourage one another. Rather than slandering, pray for one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. See, if we're busy doing these things, we don't have time for slander and gossip and destroying people's reputation. Finally, number six. Do not grumble against one another. Do not grumble against one another, James says, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, if the first five tend to speak about the outward, number six gets to the heart. Because you can grumble in your heart. You might be all smiles. We, we might say encouraging words. We may train ourselves to be the ones who encourage and exhort, but in our hearts... We grumble. The Bible calls that in Hebrews a root of bitterness. And it eventually will come out. And it will come out in the way that you interpret what your brother and sister says. It will come out in the way that you distance yourself between yourself and your brother or sister. And so whenever you're starting to feel a certain type of way, as they would say, against someone... Because you feel they've wronged you or offended you. You've got to go back to last week's class and you've got to nip it in the bud. You've got to go to that person. You have to follow Matthew 18 and say, brother, you know, you did this or you said that. And and I felt this way. Can we talk about this? Because if you don't fix that, a root of bitterness will grow in your heart and you will violate what James says. Don't do. You will begin to grumble. And the grumbling starts in the heart. And then the grumble becomes whispering to other Christians in the church. And you may not say the name, but you want the person to know who you're talking about. You'll say something like, do you ever notice that some people do A, B, and C? And then they start to get, oh, yeah, some people do that. You're right. And before you know it, now you've brought somebody in your little circle talking negatively about a brother or sister. James does not mince words when he says the judge is standing at the door. Let God be the judge. Let us be the ones who are the peacemakers, who are conciliatory, who want nothing more than restoration with a brother or sister. Do not grumble against one another. If you think of all six of these things, they they kind of all overlap, right? These are all ways to put hindrances in front of our brother or sister's walk with the Lord. These are all ways to put a stumbling block on their path so that they do not grow in Christ. But these are things, if you've noticed, that characterize the world around us. These are all worldly things. Every last one of these things, I can say, characterizes the world Right? Number one, the world is filled, as I mentioned earlier, with dishonest people. Number two, the world is filled with people passing judgment on each other. I mean, 
We see that all around us, right? In certain segments of the society, if, if you don't use certain pronouns, if you don't wave certain flags, if you don't agree to certain types of speech, you're going to be judged. You're going to be canceled. Verse 3, biting and devouring. I mean, there's whole industries built on, on gossip and, and slandering people, right? And we, we tune into We love talk radio and e-network and, and all this stuff that's just filled with... There, I think there are actually shows that are named like Gossip Talk and things like that. Um, you know, we just love celebrity gossip. Ooh, what's the latest, right? It's the world. Like, they're making money off of the very things God says. Don't do these things. Verse 4, I'm not verse 4, number 4, um, provoking envy, of course. I mean, this is like, you know, society is, is just driven by envy and putting people on pedestals. Don't you want to be like this person? Don't you want to have this voice and this athleticism and, and this intellect and this money and, and these women and men and relationships? And the world continually provokes us to envy, right? Number 5, speaking evil. I mean... When's the last time, or have you ever, have you ever, have you ever witnessed a debate amongst either politicians or maybe two talking heads on a TV show going at it where they were nice to each other and said, oh, that's a really good point. Let me think about that. But I think this, or what you must be trying to say is, or, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you vote for my opponent, I'm sure he'll do a great job, but I'll do a better job. And here's what, no. They they say the worst possible things, right? If you don't vote for me and you vote for him, it's the end of America as you know it. Do not speak evil against one another and then do not grumble. I mean, I'm sure that we've all had to deal with this if we have secular jobs, maybe even Christian jobs. You're at the water cooler. You're at the break room and people just want to gossip. And grumble about your manager, about your boss, about your coworker, right? It's all around us and it's expected. And if you say, I don't want to gossip, they're going to look at you kind of funny because it's expected that that's what you do. So all six of these are the things that the world does. And God is telling us through his word, they don't belong in my house. Because the church should be characterized by love and grace. We should reject these six things because they are worldly. And we should embrace love and grace. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, the great love chapter. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Every word in that passage is the exact opposite of those six things. You're not going to grumble against someone if you bear all things and believe all things and hope all things. You're not going to speak evil against one another if you're patient and kind. You're not going to provoke or be envious if you literally do not envy or boast. You're not going to judge someone if you don't insist on your own way. Did you see that? The antidote to all six of these things is genuine love that flows from God in Christ to our hearts. But when you do any one of these six, you have failed to love. 
Paul drives it home in Philippians 2, 3-5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's countercultural. The world tells me I'm number one. The Bible says no. You want to be greatest, you need to be the least. Let each of you, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul drives it home to the gospel. It's not a 12-step program. It's not just practical advice. The way to genuinely love one another is to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you and me when we were at our worst. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul says this in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That to me is the takeaway for this evening. That we should ask ourselves when we talk to our brothers and sisters, is our speech gracious? And gracious doesn't just mean nice and sweet. It comes from the word grace, which means undeserved favor. So if you argue and say, yeah, but this person doesn't deserve, stop right there, because then you don't understand grace. Is our speech gracious? Is it seasoned with salt? Does it, does it, is it presented with, with such a way that the hearer uh, is blessed by hearing and interacting with you? Or are you a stumbling block? I think Paul makes it clear through God's spirit how we should interact with each other. And so, brothers and sisters, these six things that the Bible says do not do to one another. Let us determine to avoid these things. If we fall into them, and we probably will from time to time, let us be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. And may the church of Jesus Christ be a place of love and service and edification and grace, not a place of bitterness and division and slander. Let the world be the world, but let the church reflect her Savior. Amen.